That's awesome. I love that. How many of you thought that was a Christmas song that we just sang during our offertory? Okay, uh, just a little bit of a pastoral rebuke for you. Um, It's actually not. It's not a Christmas song at all. It's a song about a season that actually begins today. So Christmas technically ended yesterday. And today we begin a season in the church calendar called Epiphany. Epiphany is um, a, a Greek, sort of comes from a Greek word. It means to manifest or to show or to reveal. It's the day where the church comes together and celebrates um, the Magi, um, these sort of pagan um, stargazers who come and worship King Jesus. Um, There weren't three of them. There were probably multitudes of them. They brought three gifts, though. That's where we get this idea of we three kings. Now, just a nerdy, anecdotal side note. Um, The church has, this church celebrated Epiphany for hundreds of years before it ever celebrated Christmas. We started as a church celebrating Christmas because of some heresies that arose that said that Jesus wasn't really fully man. He was actually sort of a spiritual being. And the church said, oh, no, 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 no. It's so important that Jesus was actually born, born of a woman. We're going to start celebrating that day. We call it Christmas now. But for hundreds of years before the church ever celebrated Christmas, it celebrated Epiphany. Today, the revealing or the showing of the Messiah. If you have your Bible, open to Matthew chapter 2. And here's what Matthew writes. If you want to follow along on the screen, you can. It won't be our main text for today, but if you want to turn there, you can. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his what? His star. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. I thought about that this week as I've been dwelling on this transition from Christmas and the, the, the celebration of incarnation to epiphany, the, the celebration of the revealing of Messiah. And I don't know about you, but I'd love to have a few more stars in my life. And wouldn't you? Like, I'd love to have a star over, hey, here's the city you're supposed to live in. In fact, let's get more specific. Why not a star over the house you're supposed to rent or buy, right? Or how about a star over, here's the job that you're supposed to take? Or how about a star over the date that you're supposed to retire? Let's let's get a star for that, God. Like, come on. Why don't you deliver on that one for us? Or here's a star over the person you're supposed to marry. I haven't gotten a whole lot of stars in my life. What about you? There's some tension when we read the story about Epiphany, about these wise men following the star. There's so many stars out there, God, I'm not sure which one I'm supposed to land under, right? And it seems as though the Magi get this really specific calling from God, and it just feels like our lives are a lot more ambiguous than they are specific, doesn't it? Like, very rarely has God ever been all that clear as far as his direction for me. One time, I got one star in my life. One. And and it's actually one of the reasons I'm standing here. 
Let me tell you about my one star. I've, I've told this story a few times, but as we jump into a series on discerning God's will, let me tell you the one time I felt like I heard God speak to me really, really specifically. It was about two years before I ever landed at South Fellowship. I woke up in the middle of the night, and I had this dream. This dream was so specific and so vivid that I woke my wife up to tell her about this dream because I'm not the dream guy. Like, I don't have a lot of dreams. I don't remember many of my dreams. I woke her up and I said, babe, I just had this dream. It's two in the morning. I just had this dream that I'm the pastor of a church that meets in a strip mall. <laughs> Here's the color scheme. I laid out the color scheme for the inside of South Fellowship Church. And I said, and it has a ton of fake plants in it. <laughs> Good night. I love you. Now, I didn't think about that dream for two years. I just thought, man, that's a weird church. Um, and... What a weird dream. And two years later, I started to get this sense from God that maybe he was inviting me to step into a senior pastor role somewhere. I didn't, I didn't know. I just had this sense. And I jumped on Denver Seminary's website, looked at their job board, and one of the postings on there was for South Fellowship Church. And one of the very first things it said in the description of the church is, church that meets in a strip mall. I got here. There were over 70 fake plants in the lobby. I've since dispensed of most of them. You're welcome. <laughs> and the color scheme was exactly the way that it was laid out in my dream. I didn't say anything to the search team until after because um, I didn't want to play that trump card of God told me. See, here's what, I had this confidence that God had told me, so I didn't need to tell them. <laughs> I've had one star. I I've made millions of decisions without a star. You probably have too. And there's some, I don't know, fear and trepidation around that, isn't there? Because um, if God does have a will for us, we want to know what it is, don't we? But so often, it, it seems like we're sort of shooting in the dark. I think one of the things that the Magi show us, one of the things this story of Epiphany shows us is, is that there's a star over the thing that's the most important, but over a lot of other things, there's a whole lot of freedom, that God puts a star over Jesus is Lord. And then, and then, calls us to walk by faith. I think Haddon Robinson, the great preacher, expresses it well when he said this. He said, we want to make the right decisions because we realize that the decisions we make will turn around and make us. As we choose one end of the road, he says, it will eventually determine the other end of the road. And so, yeah, let's just call it what it is. It, it can be nerve-wracking to know that we have freedom, that our choices matter, and that there's very rarely a star over where we're supposed to go or what we're supposed to do or what job we're supposed to take or, you know, I'll fill in the blank. But will you lean in for a second? I think that's actually one of the things. That, the fact that life is a maze, I think that's one of the things that makes life amazing. Because I don't know that we'd want to know everything that happens in the future. I don't think we'd want a God that just controlled every little piece of our life. I actually think that this is a way more beautiful story. And it's, it's difficult to navigate. I get that. But I think it's what makes life amazing. 
And when we go to the scriptures and we try to figure out, God, what's your will for my life? Have you guys ever done that? Have you ever gone to the scriptures and said, God, what's your will for my life? And sometimes we play like Bible roulette and we pick a verse and we go, boom, that's God's will for my life. Just make sure you're not reading about Judas, right? I mean, there's a whole lot of things in there where you could go, not sure that's your will for my life, right? So how do we figure it out? That's what we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks. Before we even start talking about God's will for our life, though, let me give you a framework to understand when we talk about the will of God in the scriptures, what are we talking about? There's three different types of God's will in the scriptures, okay? The first is God's, say it with me, sovereign will. God's sovereign will. This is the will of God that cannot be thwarted, that will happen no matter what, whether you cooperate with it or not, that's irrelevant. God's going to get it done, So the psalmist will write in Psalm 115, verse 3, God is in heaven and he does, say it with me, whatever, whatever pleases him. All right, so let's just hit time out here for a moment. And I want to give like a pastoral impartation to you. Because a lot of people misunderstand this to be everything that happens in life is God's will. So you lose a child, Well, it was God's will. You you, um, lose a friend in an accident. It's it's God's will. You go through a divorce. It's God's will. And it's interesting because we start looking through the scriptures and we see some things that are really clearly not God's will. Now, God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Sometimes it pleases him to let you decide. And that still goes under the big umbrella of God's will. Let me say it like this. I want to be as clear as I can on this. Everything that happens is within God's will, but God does not will everything that happens. Does that make sense? So there's a lot of space, a lot of space, which is why this series is even necessary. If we didn't believe that, these three weeks would be completely irrelevant. Think about that for a moment. The question of what's God's will for my life would be completely irrelevant if we didn't believe that we had some freedom of choice. If it's just going to happen regardless, then don't come the next two weeks. Save yourself the time. Watch, um, well, the Broncos aren't playing, but watch something, right? No, no, no. Everything that happens is within God's will, but God does not will everything that happens. God always gets what he wants, but he doesn't always get what he wills. Or he always gets what he wills. He doesn't always get what he wants. I said that backwards. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. So Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He gathers his disciples, looks over this hill that looks down into Jerusalem, and here's what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how I have longed I've wanted it with everything. I mean, hear the the father, shepherd, heart of God. How I've longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you were, say it with me, not willing. You weren't willing. This is what I wanted. But I willed that there be freedom. And you chose a different way. You You weren't willing. See, we're not fatalistic. 
As followers of Jesus, we do not believe that every single little thing is uh, already predetermined. Over the break that my family had, my kids and their cousins started to watch and watched it a few times. You can pray for me. Um, they watched the movie, The Greatest Showman. And there's a song in the movie, if we could rewrite the stars, say you were made to be mine. Nothing could keep us apart. You'd be the one I was meant to find. It's, it's up to you. It's up to me. No one can say what we get to be. So why don't we rewrite the stars? Maybe the world could be ours tonight. As followers of Jesus, we, we're not um, some like superstitious, oh, fatalistic, the stars determine everything about our lives. And we're also not the kind of people that say God controls everything about our lives. We're the kind of people that say, no, 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 no. God has a will, and within his will, he has given us freedom. That's why, instead of, I mean, lean in for a moment. That's why, instead of controlling us like robots, God has given us a brain. It's not just a decoration. Like, he really wants us to use it. And so, the second will of God is his moral will. His moral will. We're going to talk about this next week, but it's, it's Jesus' revealed commands and the commands revealed um, and given in the new covenant to followers of Jesus that the Bible teaches us how we ought to live and, and what we ought to believe. But, but, this moral will, we might call it like the way of wisdom, the, God's moral will doesn't always answer the question, who should I marry? What job should I take? When should I retire? Which house should we buy? Should we make this transition now? It doesn't answer some of the questions that a lot of you are asking. So there's a third will in the scriptures. We'll call it God's individual will. Now let me just do a little corrective here as well, if you'll give me the space. Um, I was a college pastor for uh, five years, and I can't tell you how many young adults I worked with that wanted to know who God wanted them to marry. And there was this prayer, help me find the one, like this like mythical unicorn one, this one person that God has designed for me to marry. Well, that sounds like really romantic, and it's maybe feels good if we make vows and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> the only problem with it is logic. Have you ever thought about that? Like, if there is one person that God designed for you to marry, what if, what if, let's just throw this out there, what if somebody else marries them? And what if those people have babies who were never part of God's plan? And then, that only has to happen once in the history of the universe for that theory to go out the window, right? So, um, a lot of times we're looking for the bullseye for this, and I think God sometimes, a lot of times, says to us, um, there's no star, so why don't you decide? Um, does this person, there's a way, there's a way to sort of narrow down who you should marry, and we can talk about that over the next few weeks, but you're never going to know for sure. This is exactly the one, the mythical unicorn one. You know how I know Kelly's the one? I married her. <laughs> That's how I know. You're welcome. 
I know it's helpful. It's unhelpful, but the same applies for jobs. The same applies for where we live. So if God's will doesn't mean that, you might be asking, what in the world does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean? That's a great question. Over the next few weeks, that's the question we are going to be tackling together. Not only what does it mean, but how do we align our lives so that we can know, God, it seems like this is where you're leading. It seems like this is what you're up to. Today, I just want to talk about packing for this journey, okay? I just want to talk about what we need, our approach to the journey of finding God's will. Next week, what I want to talk about is the compass, how do we sort of get heading in the right direction? And then week three, what I want to talk about is the map, and I want to talk about forks in the road, and I want to talk about life that often feels like a fog, and in a really practical way, how do we make decisions? So, but today, today, is about the approach. So flip over with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you're wondering, was that all intro? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Romans 12, we there? there? This is one of the passages, and there's few, very few of them in the scriptures that talk about God's individual, unique, specific will for our lives. You ready? Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, um, some translations will say, spiritual act of worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then. Okay, so if you have your own Bible, circle the word then. Um, if you have an ESV version, it's that. If you have um, a NASB, it's so that. It's this causal statement. Then, then. And you might even say only then. You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about that word then. It's only necessary that Paul put that little causal statement, that little phrase in there, because he wants to connect everything that came before in those first two verses with this, this sort of outcome then. And after you do these things, then you'll be able to know what God's will is. And see, a lot of us, we go to, God, I want to know what your will is, but we're not willing to go with his then. We're not willing to put into practice the first part that he says actually leads to the second part, the part that we really want. God, what do you want me to do? And if I were to summarize everything that comes before this word then in one word, my word would be surrender. Surrender. So we'll say it like this this morning, that we discover God's will as we surrender our lives, not as we discern the stars. It's not like the Magi. You don't live like the Magi. You don't look up in the star and find something over the place that you're supposed to live, the house that you're supposed to buy, the job that you're supposed to have, um, the person you're supposed to marry. Very rarely, sometimes that happens, but very rarely. But what Paul says is, no, no, no. It's not discerning the stars. It's actually surrendering your life that positions you to know what God's will is. Think of um, Father Abraham. He's a great case study on God's will. Genesis chapter 12, we hear his call. And it says this, the Lord had said to Abram, 
Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I mean, this is Abraham, surrender. Abraham, live by faith. Um, I, I would, if I were Abraham, I think I'd want to say, hey, God, why don't you just tell me the land we're going to, and then I'll go there. You may have noticed this in your life. I'm starting to realize it more in mine, that God is way more into show than he is into tell. Right? Like, I want him to tell me. He wants to show me. And telling is something that we can go and we can control and we can do. Showing is something that happens in, in a present, in a moment. It's not something that we can sort of chase after. It's Abraham, one step at a time, day after day after day after day. I've been challenged. I've been corrected by this passage in coming to this realization that I want understanding, but God wants trust. Anybody want to say amen to that? Yeah, yeah, I want to know all the ins and outs and all the sort of forks in the road and where to go. And God says, yeah, 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 we'll get there. And when we get there, I will show you. And maybe my showing you will say, you decide. It's the same thing we read in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Many of you have this put to memory. But let me just point out that there's a progression here. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, submit to him. Trust and submit. I'll just call it surrender. And, you can maybe even say, and then, and he will make your paths straight. As you trust, as you surrender, he straightens out your path. See, Paul is setting up a dominoes. And the last one that falls is, ah, and then you know God's will. And we want to fast forward through the process. This morning is primarily about saying to us that knowing God's will is predicated on a life of surrender. And so here's the way that, let me, let's just dive into this text because it's really beautiful and brilliant what the Apostle Paul does here. He's going to walk us through, what does this actually look like to live a life of surrender? What, what does that look like? And I think as we start 2019 that this might be, ooh, my mic doesn't like I'm wearing a sweater, that's okay, that this might be a really, really good place to start a new year. Yes? What does surrender look like? Here's what he says first. Therefore, now, if you take notes in your Bible, circle that word, therefore, and then right off to the side, 1 through 11, okay? And what Paul's saying is, in light of what I've said in chapters 1 through 11, here's what you do. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's what? Mercy. In view of God's, it's actually, in the Greek, it's actually mercies, like overflowing, abundant, so good. So here's the thing. If we want to surrender and understand what will is, first thing, first thing we've got to do is we've got to remember 
We've got to look back. We've got to, we've got to view God's mercy. Hey, Paul's not just saying that as a suggestion. He's calling the church. Therefore, as you view God's mercy that I've laid out for you in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for you, atonement of your sin, life with God, spirit indwelling, made alive, made sons and daughters of the king, as you think about that, God's faithfulness becomes your foundation, and if we're going to have any prayer of understanding what God's will is for our life, we must first be confident of his mercy over my life. I will build my life upon your love. That's what Paul is saying. I will build my life upon your love. We explore God's specific will for us, his individual will for us, as we stand on his redemptive purpose fulfilled in Jesus over us. And only then. That's the only ground to stand on in exploring. God, what's your individual will for me? It's, God, I know, that, I know this. I know that you've come. I know that you've given yourself in love. I know that you've conquered the grave, that death has no sting. I know because of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that you are good through and through. Okay, now. Now let's start exploring. God, what's your individual will for me? And the reason this is so important is because there will be things that come into your life that do not feel good. And our default might be, if we don't view God's mercy regularly, to think that God is bad. No, so Paul wants to guard against that. He wants to cut us off at the pass. He wants to say, no, no, no. Love is the lens. God is love. There's no time that God is not love. And there's no way that the cross and resurrection can be true if God is not good. So view God's mercy regularly. Um, We use the terminology here. I'll use the term often, preach to yourself. Remind yourself of it. And and this is simply just a way of saying, view God's mercy regularly. Because Paul's suggesting that we cannot know the plan of God if we're first not convinced of the mercy of God. Write that down. Write that down. We can't know the plan of God if we're not first convinced of the mercy of God. And here's here's where he goes next. Here's where he goes next. He says, offer your, um, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. See, discipleship to Jesus, Paul would say, rules out just cognitive assent. It rules out, you can't just have a sort of theological, intellectual awareness. You can't just have a warmed inner soul. Our obedience affects every piece of us. It affects every piece of our humanity. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my my all, my all. And so here's what the Apostle Paul would say, I think he'd say, commit, commit, because your life is your worship, and your life is God's workshop, 
It's as you commit and as you walk with Jesus that you start to be transformed more and more into his image, that, that we're transformed as we move and as we follow, not just as we sit and as we study, although those things are great. They're just not enough. They're just not enough. Now, this is really interesting, and I, I'm, I'm going to be intentional about not going too far down a rabbit trail here, but I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice for every single one of Paul's old covenant sort of Jewish believers, they would have thought, well, temple. Like Paul's talking about an animal that we bring and sacrifice and kill so that we can be okay with God. What's really interesting is that most scholars think that the book of Romans was written in 57 AD, which means that the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. There were still people taking animals to be sacrificed. There were still people who thought, ah, oh, we're made right with God based on the blood of this goat, the blood of this bull, the, these, these doves. We're made right with God based on the animal that we bring. And so, like, notice, Paul is not making a minor shift in approach. He's saying, God's not interested in your bulls even though they're still doing these sacrifices, God's not interested in your goats. And you know what's interesting? If you were to really read through the prophets, what you'd find is that God was never really all that interested in those things. What's he interested in? Your life. Your life. Your whole life. Your heart. Your body. Your soul. Your mind. And so he says, the life of the Christian is one of a living sacrifice. We are, we are on the altar, as it were. It's um, similar to marriage. Um, marriage is standing before an altar and it's standing on an altar. Um, June 1st, 2002, I stood before an altar, before my friends and family, before God, and said um, yes to Kelly Hester. What's even more surprising is that she said yes to me. And I said no to everyone else. See, marriage is as much about a yes as it is about a no. And that's the picture that Paul's painting here. It's, it's, a, it's a yes to the way of Jesus. And this yes, you could summarize it if you're like, give me some handles, Paulson. What does this yes mean? Let me give you one handle. Let me give you one word. Let me make it as simple as I possibly can. Jesus did. Here's the one word. Love, that's the altar you're on. As a follower of Jesus, the altar you are on is I choose to love. Paul didn't mince words at all. Here's what he said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. You could even say, oh, those sacrifices, no value, none. The only thing. The only thing that counts is faith that expresses itself through what? Love. Love. So if the faith in Jesus that you have doesn't express itself in love, it's not the kind of faith that God's interested in. Paul made it really simple. He's going, here's the lens. 
Um, Jesus would say the same thing in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new command to give you, love one another as I have loved you, as I have loved you, in the same way that I've loved you, love one another. That's the marching orders. I read this book by Andy Stanley recently that just messed with me called Irresistible, and in it he makes the point, before the church ever had a Bible, it had a command, love, and it changed the world. It changed the Walk in the way of love just as Christ has loved us and given himself up for us. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians chapter 5. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians chapter 4. The church was obsessed with this just as life. Just as Christ. That's the altar you're on. And implicit within the imagery of an altar means that there may be things that God calls us to that we wouldn't naturally choose. It may not be, to sort of go back a few weeks, it may not be our strongest desire sometimes. But I think if we drill down enough, it might be our deepest. It might be our deepest. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But if we truly want God's will, then obedience to the way of Jesus is not optional. So there it is. If we truly want God's will, obedience to the way of Jesus, a committed life, is not optional. So I guess we should probably decide whether or not we really want it because death to self and taking up the cross is the pathway to life. And there's no other. All right, finally. Verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Did you, you notice that in this verse, it suggests that confirmation or conforming to the pattern of this world happens naturally, but transformation takes intentionality. Confirmation happens, conforming to the pattern of the world happens naturally. You just have to be in the world and you're conformed to it, but transformation only happens intentionally. So we're, we are so concerned oftentimes with the map that sort of tells us where we should go and what we should do. Uh, should I take a left here or right here? Should I, should I uh, pursue this work or that work? Should I do this or pursue that? I think there are some maps that we should be way concerned with, but they're not those maps. They're actually the maps that you and I have in our mind. I don't know if you, you, you're aware of this, but neuroscientists have actually studied this and they've found that neurons that fire together, they say wire together. So we have a pathway in our mind that says, oh, when I'm wronged, here's how I respond. When I don't get my way, here's how I respond. When people wrong me, here's what I do. When I want some pleasure, here's where I go. How many of you saw some of your neuro pathways show themselves over this break when you spent time with your family? <laughs> it's one of the best ways to see them, right? And, and what neuroscience is showing us is that the longer you practice an action and are reinforced by what it gives you, the stronger that pathway becomes. Those things are really, really hard to break, but they're not impossible. They're not impossible. You can, through intentional discipleship and reformation of habits, that's why forming a habit takes anywhere between 20 and 40 days, but you can start to rewire your brain. And Paul, thousands of years before neuroscientists ever figured that out, told us to do that. 
told us to do that. And here's what he says. He says, renew, renew your mind. I love this because um, viewing God's mercy is about our heart. It's about our affection. Committing our lives is about our body. And renewing is about our mind because the maps in your mind, the map in your mind determines the course of your life. Reprogramming is a process. As Karl Barth said, it is repentance. When the scriptures talk about repentance, this is what it's talking about. The way that I'm thinking about this thing is wrong. Is wrong. It's why on the wall, if you go out, walk out to the left, you'll see six words that are our values. It's why one of our values is practice. Because we believe that the maps we have in our brain will determine the way that we live and the life that we, the, the road that we walk, and that those things, in order to conform to discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus, need to be rewired. So I read this quote to you, I think, every sermon that I preach uh, the first of the year. If you're anticipating it, I didn't want to disappoint. It's by D.A. Carson, and here's what he says. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Yeah, I'll revisit this in 2020, January 5th, 2020. But it's so true. It's what Paul writes. Don't be conformed. Be transformed. And implicit within what he says is every single one of us is being formed, right? We're either being conformed or we're being transformed. Formation and spiritual formation isn't a Christian thing, it's a human thing. And so what Paul's saying is surrender your life under the lordship of Jesus and be transformed. So maybe this year, and I'm going to give you a time just in a moment to pause, but you have a little blank there that says my practice for this week, or maybe it's even this year. Um, well, what is it? How, how are you going to actively say, God, I want to recharge some of these maps in my mind so that they conform more into the image of Jesus, so that, so that I see Jesus and am transformed and my actual brain starts to change and my body starts to change and, and I actually start to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Maybe you download version and you walk through the Bible this year, or maybe if you go, that's, that's way too big, just do the New Testament. Just, just start with the New Testament and read it through in the year. You can do that. I promise you can do that. I'll put some resources um, online with this message, but one of them would be Lectio Divina, to start reading the Bible in a way that actually asks God to speak to you rather than just knocking it out. Maybe you use a prayer of examine this year to say, Jesus, I just want to start rethinking the way that I'm thinking. And in order to do that, I need to think about what I'm thinking about. It's a lot of thinking. <laughs> Maybe this year you become a part of our daily, uh, read our daily devotions. There's a little link or there's a, 
um, a web address on the bottom of your outline that you got when you walked in. And it, it'll walk you through how to sign up. But it's a video on Monday that I do just sort of walking you through how I got what I got when I preached. The next few days are devotions that hopefully feed your soul. And then Friday is a spiritual practice that we encourage you to undertake to just say, Jesus, I just want to open up to your grace that I believe you're pouring out. Sign up this year. Dive in. But don't miss this. What Paul's saying is that if we want to know God's will for our lives, we've got to start thinking differently. We've got to start thinking differently. If you're one of those people that looks for a word for 2019, and maybe you're like, oh, I don't have my word quite yet, um, what about the word remember? Or, or maybe the word commit? Or, or maybe the word renew? Just an idea. Here's how Paul closes and we're real close. Then, so as you remember and as you commit and as you renew, then and only then, will you be able to test and approve? That, that word is one word in the Greek, and it, and it literally means, let me read you the definition of what it means, to show something is acceptable and good because you've put it to the test. So I would even, maybe you could translate that, and then you will experience and enjoy what God's will is. His good, his pleasing, his perfect will. <laughs> yeah, why can you test and approve it? Because you're in it. Because you're in it. We don't search for God's will. As we remember, commit, renew, we actually get to write a Yelp review of his will. Oh, it's good. It's good pleasing. It's perfect. See, I think what Paul's saying is God's will isn't something we find. It's something we find ourselves in. God's will isn't something we find. It's something we find ourselves in as we lay down our lives and as we walk with him and as we become disciples, apprentices of the way of Jesus, his heart, his way, we go, I'm in it. I'm in it. I love this quote by Wendell Berry, character in one of the books he wrote, and the character says this, often I have not known where I was going until I was already there. I've had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me more than I've gone out to it. <laughs> and it's gone, come by mistakes and surprises Often I've received better than I've deserved. Often my faintest hopes have rested on bad mistakes. I'm an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley, and yet for a long time looking back, I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I have been led. Make of that what you will. Friends, it's not a searching the stars. It's a bowing the knee. That's how we find. God's will. So we're going to celebrate the table this morning. And as we do that, we're going to open our lives back up to Jesus and say, Jesus, all we have and all we are is yours. And it's that posture of surrender that actually opens us up to taste and see that he's good. The table's open to any who are followers of Jesus. If you need gluten-free, um, you're welcome. It's all gluten-free now. Okay. 
Followers of Jesus are people who say, yeah, I'm going to remember and I'm going to commit and I'm going to renew. As you come this morning, would you come with a posture of your life being, my knee is bowed to Christ as king. So Jesus, as we come, um, we're not searching out the stars. We're bowing our knee, believing that you're good that you love us, that you're calling us to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. So even as we come today, rewire our mind that we might live more in your way. It's in your name we pray.